This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me in both a historical and performative sense. This is episode number 29 for January 2013. Our topic for today is a little different than usual. Instead of focusing in on a specific film, we're looking at the topic of historical drama or dramatized history. And our last episode, we talked a little bit about The Grapes of Wrath and how it dealt with some historical issues of its time. And we're kind of moving today, I think, into some more contemporary um, issues. Um, Films like Argo and Zero Dark Thirty caught our attention. Um, and how they were dealing with uh, the recent past. This is not going to be a spoiler-free discussion, and it might be fairly wide-ranging in the movies that we refer to. So, Ken, fictionalized history, historical fiction, why do we care? Well, Lincoln won the Civil War. That's a spoiler alert. (laughs) Uh, Why do we care? The reason I care, I've thought over the years about whether or not the standards for judging, and I think I mean in a moral sense, not just in an aesthetic sense, a work of art that depicts actual people or real people is any different from judging a work of art that purports to be strictly imaginative. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about that more Because that seems to have come up a lot in this award season. You mentioned Argo, which, full disclosure, a lot of people listening to this podcast will already know, touches upon my own life. My father was a hostage in Iran, although not one of the house guests in the movie. There are a number of scenes in that movie where he could have been in. He was never identified by name as a character in the movie. And so my own feelings watching the movie as a consumer were very different than just watching other historical fiction. Certainly there's been a lot of debate about Zero Dark Thirty and the extent to which it's agenda-driven filmmaking, whether or not it is accurate, and whether or not it should be accurate, uh, both ranging on sides from people who were saying uh, it was accurate and that promotes a particular agenda, whether it's pro-torture or anti-torture, or it's not accurate, but it doesn't really matter because a work of art needs to be accurate in some true, in some broader sense, even if it's not accurate. Uh, I've also had some discussions or heard some discussions about two recent films, Lincoln and Django Unchained, that were about historical events, but more remote. But nevertheless, people feel strong emotional attachments to. I spoke with a former student who was African-American who just had trouble with Django because slavery was real and Django was much more of a stylized, fictionalized account of slavery and certainly a number of comparisons of Zero Dark Thirty to Lincoln in the sense of 
how accurate is the film about all of the things that Lincoln did during the Civil War to get through the Emancipation Proclamation, Mm -hmm. and why do we care or seem to care more about the accuracies of Zero Dark Thirty than we do about Lincoln? Is it just because we understand that the further it is in the past, the more liberties will be taken, or is there some other more sinister thing? So that's a whole collection of ideas or themes, mm-hmm. but I, the shortest distillation answer to your question about why do we care, why are we talking about it, is just that it's something that seems to have come up a lot in discussions of a lot of different movies. And one of the things I, I think I hear you saying in terms of that question about when we're, when we're talking about films that are depicting real, actual people is... You know, all the films we've talked about, the, the people that are in them are, are suffering in some way, um, they're, whether they're being held hostage, whether they're being killed. Even in something like Zero Dark Thirty, it's the process of going about and preparing to kill um, and what happens to other people along the way. Um, and certainly, I think there is that underlying question of, you know, in terms of the moral aspects of this are, you know, what what are we willing to look at in terms of entertainment? Um, I know the kind of pre-show discussion, we got into a whole big discussion of art and entertainment and where, where what are those lines? Is what's appropriate for one? Is it necessarily appropriate for the other? Yeah. I don't know if the suffering versus not is ultimately going to be a red herring. Mm-hmm. I, it has certainly been a catalyst. I, I shared with you and I've shared with many people that uh, a big part of or a seed of origin in my own experience for a lot of these has been uh, that I've always been fascinated with Jack the Ripper stories and movies mm-hmm. about Jack the Ripper. And many years ago, around about the time From Hell came out, I happened across a historical scholarly book by a guy named Donald Rumbelow, uh, that had actual autopsy footage of the victims of Jack the Ripper, and it was very disorienting to me to the this person and his victims had been so mythologized that even though on one level I, I understood that this was a historical person, actually seeing the physical bodies of the actual people made me wonder if I were to die and and actually meet these people in heaven, how would I feel and how might they feel knowing like, oh, I went to this movie and watched someone representing you in what must have been a horrific and terrible thing in your life, just for my entertainment purposes. Um, That was certainly not long after that prompted by watching the movie Zodiac, which I I couldn't get through the first time. I eventually did, and I thought very highly of the film. I think very highly of David Fincher. I think Zodiac was on my top ten films for that year. But I had the same reaction, where there was a scene of the Zodiac killer killing one of the victims, and I couldn't get past. This was an actual person who actually died. It's not quite a snuff film, because it's a reenactment, but... But I felt somehow guilty watching this for aesthetic 
pleasure or entertainment value and not being able to really focus on or even be, I was going to say not really focus on my own horror, but I think a bigger issue is not actually being horrified because we see so many imaginative killings that even though the mind says this is real in some way or more real, there's another part of the, the mind by habit that says, no, it's not, or that treats it as such. It's it's a perverse sort of reverse of what some writers, I think John Updike was one, talked about, about watching 9-11 on television. That on the one hand, we knew that it was real, but on the other hand, we've seen so many explosions on television right. that it felt un, unreal. Sure. So those are there. I, I know for myself, one of the questions, whenever I am watching a film of any kind that says based on actual events or something to that effect. Hollywood has all kinds of different labels they seem to put on films depending on how closely inspired by inspired by, by. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know and in terms of thinking about this in the thin place, you know there, there there's this issue of truth, you know and and, and how and, and obviously that that's a big topic and that's Got all kinds of interesting lines, and I'm reminded of something Charlotte Bronte wrote, um, I believe, to the second edition of Jane Eyre, uh, preface. And, you know, she was making the point that just because something is fiction doesn't mean it's not true. Um, that these these novels, these stories, in, in defending her work, get at something true in our human experience. Um, and that's one of the, you know, as a person who studies literature... That is certainly one of the things that draws me to that. Um, then when we see a, a film made up out of historical events, that starts getting interesting because, we, you know, it's impossible for us to recreate, ac- you know, absolutely faithfully what happened in any of these historical events. Um, but... You know, at that point, then, what are we making, I guess, is the question that I have. And how close to true is this? And how do we even judge that? Is um, I think, is part of where I find myself coming to with this topic. Right. Well, one of the conclusions that we came to in the pre-show discussion that I think is true is that anything is ultimately reductive. It's impossible to totally encapsulate truth because it's impossible for us in our own finite subjective perspective to know truth. Right. Uh, if this were an infinitely long podcast, we might spiral off down into theological discussions about why that makes revelation possible. But let me use as a test case, let's talk about Zero Dark Thirty for a okay. second, because I, I think in some levels, Argo and my personal connection and Zodiac, I don't have a personal connection to Zodiac, but I did have a brother who was murdered, so my, you know, the, the ways in which that feels closer to me may be a hindrance rather than a help in sorting out. I, I liked Zero Dark Thirty, both in the sense of liked as enjoyed the movie and artistically appreciated it a lot. I, I sense that you did too. Yes. I was one of those people 
who I would put more or less in the category of, I understand there may have been things that were not perfectly accurate or perfectly historical. I didn't much care because I felt as though the film embodied certain things that I thought were true, even if they weren't necessarily accurate. For instance, there is a scene in which Jessica Chastain, who I think is playing Maya, is trying to sell the director of the CIA that they ought to take this operation. And the CIA director, played by James Gandolfini, is going around the table and asking everyone about how certain they are. And, you know, one guy says 60%, you know, and someone else says about 60%. And Jessica Chastain says 100%. And then they're like, all looking at her, and she says, oh, okay, well, you know, just because I know that certainty freaks you guys out and there's this whole embedded backstory about we were certain about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and then we were wrong that I'll say 95%, but really 100%. That scene to me was very true. Mm -hmm. It was true about life. It was true about people grappling with the moral complexities of decision-making in a universe in which you can never be 100% sure and the ways that people deal with that. Did that conversation actually take place? Did the people in it actually use that numbers? Or was that done for a dramatic point of view. I don't know. I don't much care. There was a larger truth there that that was embedded in it that the film skillfully portrayed. But I've also written in another context that about the film Dead Man Walking, in which Tim Robbins more or less makes that same argument that I just made about his own film and saying, well, okay, the people who are involved didn't really say that. I put that in to develop some larger right. truth. And in that situation, it bothered me a great deal. So part of what I'm wrestling with is why does that argument or that justification satisfy me in some works of art and in other works of art make me object and say I, I'm dissatisfied with that explanation well, of the art. And here's a question I would ask. You had you had mentioned in kind of leading up to this that, you know, you you wonder and you know, is it because you agree more with the quote unquote message of the one rather than the other? Or or is it the fact that in the Zero Dark Thirty film that particular instance is not really making a point about the larger issues. I mean, this is not about should we torture somebody or not. This is not about should we kill Osama bin Laden or not. This is about, you know, a decision-making process that speaks to us. And so that's, it's kind of away from the big issues. And so maybe, and it, although it does speak to a larger truth about how we operate as human beings, whereas in Dead Man Walking, you know, and I, I don't know exactly what scenes you're referring to, but, Perhaps was it that those those insertions of dramatic license, were they more about central to the argument of the film? Some were, some weren't. Uh, two quick examples. It, in one of them, uh, the father or parents of one of the victims 
murder victims in Dead Man Walking is going through a divorce mm-hmm. in the film. And Tim Robbins says in his director commentary that the actual couple did not divorce. But that in reading statistics and preparing for the movie, he said that experience was very common. That 70% of couples who have a child that is murdered end up divorcing. And he felt like that was an important truth that needed to be embedded. So he changed that historical event about that particular character. And I was like, well, okay, if I were that particular character and I was depicted as going to, that would really bother me. Mm -hmm. Um, The second example might be... Uh, that the murderer, played by Sean Penn in, in Dead Man Walking, was actually a composite of several mm-hmm. characters, at least in the books. Right. Sister Helen Prejean talks about giving spiritual guidance to a number of them. But it's clear that there are a couple of cases that he's specifically, Tim Robbins is specifically thinking of. And he says at one point that um, the actual person that, it was modeled on was not killed by lethal injection, but by electrocution, but that Tim Robbins changed it because he didn't want people to get to the end and say, you're right. Electrocution is barbaric. Therefore let's do lethal injection. Let's do what he felt was the most humane form to say that's still not humane enough, but is a very not accurate in the sense of, but was done for a particular purpose. So uh, those are a couple of them. Did that second one bother you as much? Yes. Okay. But that also comes within the context of, and I think what we're, we're getting towards is that part of what bothered me about that is Tim Robbins would repeatedly answer criticisms of his film and his choices by saying, well, that's what really happened. That's what really happened. And I'm like, okay, if you're going to justify certain artistic choices by saying, don't blame me, that's just what really happened, Mm -hmm. then you can't justify other ones by saying, no, that was an artistic choice to explain a broader truth. Either your commitment is to what happened and you have to try to do that the best you can, all at Zero Dark Thirty, or your commitment is to telling a broader truth, and you have to own that, that that's more mm-hmm. important to you than... than so perhaps list. there what's, what's bothering you more is the inconsistency of the filmmaker. Yes. And that gets back to, I, I think, a word that we haven't yet interjected in our podcast, but is important to me from a Christian perspective of viewing our art, and that's trust. Mm-hmm. I think it ultimately comes down not so much to whether or not I agree with the artist in the position because I actually agree with Tim Robbins' position on the death penalty. And I don't know that I agree with what I perceive to be some of the arguments in Zero Dark Thirty. Let's say, I know this is ambiguous and disputable, but let's say Zero Dark Thirty or parts of it could be used to support ter- uh, torture. Mm-hmm. To the extent that it's simply a matter of I agree or disagree, well, I agree that the death penalty is unjust and cruel and more or less would like to see it restricted, perhaps even abolished. I agree, I disagree that torture is an effective or necessary tool, Mm -hmm. 
But the thing about it is Zero Dark Thirties depiction made me question that preoccupation, you know, and Dead Man Walking didn't necessarily confirm the rightness of it because I got all tied up into not whether the thing itself was true, whether or not my position was right and supported by the facts of life, but mm-hmm. whether or not it was just being argued effectively by a particular you know, right. thing. And so I think in some ways then it's, it's a matter of do I trust the filmmaker or the artist? Do I think that he or she has enough integrity that they're going to do right by me and I can submit myself to their artistic judgment, you know, do I really believe that they're seeking after truth on some abstract level or higher level? And if I do, whatever mistakes they make in the level of accuracy are, you know, well-meaning or well-intentioned in the service of, of a genuine and sincere exploration of truth or if I don't trust them do I feel as though then everything's going to go back to aha that's evidence that you are playing fair that you are playing that you are stacking the deck rather than stacking the deck for an answer that you've already come to rather than imperfectly since we're all human beings even artists making a statement about how you're seeking after truth and inviting me to do the same. And that's where, you know, if we look at a film like Lincoln, you know, you talk about trust. And, and I think that, you know, Lincoln's an interesting case. There, there's been a lot written about some of the historical inaccuracies or, or things that are left out. Let's say not necessarily inaccuracies, but aspects of that whole story of, you know, Lincoln getting the amendments passed and, and these things that were um, you know, perhaps not included. But I found myself going through that film, and, and even though I have <coughs> somewhat of, I mean, I think Spielberg is just an insanely talented filmmaker who can really put together a good film, I still find some of his work problematic. Um, but one of the things he does well is he, he collects all of this historical detail. And so the world he created in Lincoln just felt and looked very real. And I think that builds a certain kind of trust. Can I ask you a question? This might be a tangent, so I don't know. But how much of that do you feel is attributable to Steven Spielberg? And how much of it do you feel is attributed to Doris Kearns Goodwin and Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg is actually importing or appropriating or co-opting the trust that we give to some other people. Well, and yeah, I mean, I guess this gets at that whole question of when we start talking about movies, films, as opposed to, say, a novel. I mean, with a novel, there is an author. And we can pretty much assume the author is the author, and that's it. So whatever is going on in that novel, we attribute to, you know, Charlotte Bronte or whoever. Um, with a film, it's much harder, isn't it? There's the art director, there's the costume people, there's all the, you know, this whole world of people that are working together. Yeah, but that's a little bit of an evasion of, of my question. <laughs> of, of my question in the sense of Steven Spielberg has a body of work. He does. And 
accepting perhaps AI, which is... Yeah, I tend to think of it as a Stanley Kubrick film more than a Steven Spielberg <laughs> film. I, I don't... He's got mad talent. Yeah. Mad talent. Exactly. And, you know, Steven Spielberg, if you ever hear this, please <laughs> forgive my, my arrogance. It, it, for, but I don't know that I look at a lot of Steven Spielberg films and feel a humility like I am groping for the truth or I'm exploring after truth. I, I feel as though it's always sort of, it's a little too neat, it's a little too clean. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what I want to say, and I'm effectively going to uh, say it. It's it's going to be almost overly designed, you know, overly designed. Well, he's definitely a director, I think, that has a very strong vision. Right. Of what, you know, this is yes. what I am going to say. Right. You know, and what, you know, even if it's Indiana Jones... This is what the film is going to be. Right. Michael and Kors and Heidi Klum and Project Runway will sometimes talk about a dress being over-designed. Yeah. You know, in, in a particular way. And maybe that's just an aesthetic preference of mine. I'm thinking of Billy Joel, right? And, and his song Shades of Grey where he says, Save us all from arrogant men and all the causes. Therefore, mm -hmm. I won't be righteous again. I'm not that sure anymore. That that over-designed or that over-emphatically... It, it becomes not as messy. Sure. And that makes me distrust it because there seems to be like, okay, it's all pat. And not just in a Spielberg way, but when you start getting into theology, I'm distrustful of, you know, Christians who will sure. just be like, okay, well, it's all really easy and it's all really pat. And I just have these answers for, for everything. And, and, well, and I think one of the things that we see in Spielberg you know, in some of his, like with Schindler's List, one of the things that drove me nuts is his reliance on the frame narrative. You know, it's like, we're not just going to tell you the story. We're going to begin in the present with a whole bunch of people that are, we already know what the ending is. You know, he knows what the ending is. And then we're going to flash back to how all these people got to wherever they are. Um, we, I think we had the same conversation with Chariots of Fire. Um, not yes, a, not a Spielberg Fire. film, but... A same device. Well, and, you know, recently I reviewed this Christian evangelical film called Little Red Wagon, and, and I was like, why do every film that's based on a real person now have to have that final credits where we see the home movies of the actual people, whether it be Soul Surfer, whether it be The Blind Side, whether it be Little Red Wagon, whether it be... Well, I think it's that insistence. This was real. Right. This really happened. And... There is an insistence there that I think, you know, maybe it is, you know, the, one of the faults of Spielberg's take is that he's trying to say this is real when, in fact, we, we know, you know, or anyone who has read any kind of history knows that, you know, he's telling a story, but he's not including all of the, the facts and all the details. That would get very complicated and wouldn't be very neat. Um, it, it would be, probably not be possible either. Yeah, it probably wouldn't you know, be possible. You, you, there's always going to be something left out. You know, and, and to compare, I mean, with Zero Dark Thirty, you know, it's certainly telling a story. You know, one of the conversations we had after that was, you know, it does fit into this little narrative that we like in America of the plucky individual who everybody else has given up on a cause, but there's that one person who's doggedly going to follow it through and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing until it is successful. Yeah, you know, when you and think about that narratively, the, structurally, 
zero net start 30 plot wise is not that much different than your average episode of CSI or right. Criminal Minds uh, or Law and Order SVU, where once a year there is the missing person's case or the fa- that was never solved and the one detective is like, you know, following up years. or the parent never gives up exactly. and all the detectives are like, no, she's dead. No, I won't believe that she's dead. And, and um, But where I think we see Zero Dark Thirty kind of transcending that genre or that, that structure is, yeah, it, it, it isn't easy. It isn't, I mean, I think we get a sense there is some struggling with ideas here. Um, you know, the, the depiction of torture and the, and the, whether the role that torture plays in that film is not straightforward. Um, it, it isn't clear exactly what's contributing, what's not contributing. Could this have been successful without torture or not? The film, I, I don't think, gives us a clear indication. Right. Well, it's a little bit more com- complex, and like life, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Yes. In the sense of, in the TV show, it's usually that one person, and it's clear how they did things. In Sierra Dark 30, it often feels that way. It often feels like she's the only one, but we become privy to conversations beyond her sphere. We become... You know, we realize that none of this would have happened but for her and her persistence. But even with her persistence, there still had to be luck. There still had to be other people who noticed what house the car went into right. or who kept on or who greenlit particular, you know, things or who made the decision to you know, trust her and run with it. And there's the places where she keeps writing the number of days right. and say nothing has happened. And actually we're aware of a lot of things have happened. But it, she's not privy to it. But she's not privy to them. And so there's, it, yeah. it is more complex than that. And, and rather he, than just telling, using the events to tell a very cliched, story uh, that we've heard in a lot of other different yeah and it's it, it, it's a good case I think where we see an artist using a structure rather than the structure using the artist mm-hmm. this is yes we're going to focus on this one person obviously there's a whole complex web of individuals who are working together that brought about the discovery of Osama Bin Laden's hiding place and in his execution I mean we see that no no clearer than I mean she, you know Maya gets left behind I mean she's not part of SEAL Team 6 that goes and does the mission I mean she's got to sit back at the base and wait right um, and and in fact there's the there's like a wonderful scene going back to that theme of certainty which resonated very strongly to me mm-hmm. where the guy that is going to have to go, says if I'm going to end up, and he uses a euphemism for rape, you know, raped in a Pakistani prison, I'd like it to be for something other than she happens to be certain, you know. And I think that's a reminder to her and a reminder to us that our certainty, well, as the weapons of mass destruction thing is sometimes we're certain and wrong. That's a truth of the human experience. Exactly. Right? And sometimes our wrongness or our rightness about certainty 
has real-life human consequences that other people bear the brunt of besides just ourselves. And that's what makes it so agonizingly pressure-filled, tension-filled mm -hmm. for her, is because even though we know how it's going to end and we know that she's going to be right, I think we all archetypally have been in that position where however certain we are, however convinced we are, convicted we are of, of our rightness, there is that level of understanding of the consequences are more or less on us, you know? Right. And, and that's, that's a truth about life and decision-making and leadership that the film very artfully explores and that some other right. films that are more accurate wouldn't even be aware of. You know, one of the things that trusts that film, too, and we were talking about Spielberg before and his body of work. Well, you know, the director of Zero Dark Thirty, uh, Bigelow, right? Yeah, Catherine yeah, Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow. She has a body of work. And one of the other previous films I'd seen from her was The Hurt Locker, which is, yeah, set in a real historical situation, but was definitely fiction. Um, and having seen how she handled that story, which had some similar ideas of, you know, people being very certain... Um, it's about a, a soldier in a bomb squad, and, you know, his choices have very real effects. I think one of the things that made that film even more tense than Zero Dark Thirty was the fact that you didn't know how it was going to end. Right. Because it was fiction. It's the, you know, the first time you're going through it. What is going to happen? Perhaps that's one of the challenges of the historical drama, is that if, you know, especially things that are recent, like Zero Dark Thirty, where we do know how it ends, and there are certain things, you know, if if they had half the team get wiped out, we would be outraged because we know that didn't happen. Well, Todd, let me, um, before we get to the end of this podcast, let me let me circle back and to a, the more abstract level of the conversation. I feel like I've shared a couple of instances or pieces of art where changes or perceived changes bothered me. Uh, I feel like you've staked out the territory of either more ambivalence or more sanguine, like I don't have a personal stake in the accuracy. Those things don't necessarily bother me. Are there examples? Is that an accurate assessment of where you're at? Are there examples that you can think of where, you know, you've either liked or watched a film or read a historical account or something like that, and then come to be disappointed or frustrated that it wasn't accurate or, I mean, does that ever really bother you or is that just kind of a non-issue for you? I guess on the, on the one hand, I would say that films that I have seen that then I've learned, oh, that was, you know, wildly inaccurate or something. I guess it, maybe it, it doesn't surprise me. I often think that it's partly because I don't think the movies were that good to begin with. And so if, you know, things being wrong historically is just kind of adds to the list of other reasons why I wasn't thrilled with whatever. Um, on the other hand, when there are, we mentioned, you mentioned Dead Man Walking. Um, I thought it was a very effective film. Things were changed. On the one hand, doesn't really bother me too much. And I think I have a, I have an easier time separating the art object from the actual events, maybe. That 
easier than me, you mean? Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. I don't... No, I think yeah. that's fair. I just yeah. wanted to clarify. Yeah. Well, and, and part of it, too, I mean, a lot of our discussions recently have been about films that you've you've had something more at stake in. And I guess that's part for me. So what do you have stake in? You know? <laughs> Nothing anyone is ever going to make a movie about. I have Owners of Christian bookstores, you know, something. sons of pastors. Um, but, you know, and Beermeisters. Could be. I, you know, one of the things, I mean, we had this discussion the other night, and and perhaps this is getting us into some wild tangent. I mean, the things that I get more upset about, interestingly, have been fictional, you know, have basically been adaptations of fictional stories that I hold very dear. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. I am talking about you. Um, that, again, I think it comes down to there's that, we talked earlier about there's something about truth. And, and when I see adaptations and I've seen plenty of adaptations of things that I love that I find just fine and wonderful. Um, but when those adaptations are somehow false to the truth that is contained in the the original, I find myself getting a little hot. Um, and I don't know what that says about me, um, that I seem to be more invested in telling the truth about these fictional accounts than life. Um, I guess part of it is I've just, I've never believed that that could be done. So when it doesn't happen in terms of real events, um, I, I'm not looking to film to give me my history, I guess is the response. Now, that's fair. You're talking about adaptation made me think about movie fictional so far as I know, Absence of Malice, where Sally Field plays a reporter mm-hmm. uh, with Paul Newman and towards the end, this other reporter, she, Sally Field ends up becoming part of the story and the other reporter has to interview her and is asking her about the nature of her relationship with Paul Newman and says, well, can I say, is it fair to say your relationship is thus and such or whatnot? And is that true? And Sally Field's response, which always stuck with me is no, but it's accurate. And fiction, maybe fiction just does a better job and maybe your temperament or personality or life experience has allowed you to learn earlier than I have or become more comfortable that there's a difference between truth and accuracy. And I'm more committed (laughs) to truth Mm -hmm. uh, than I am to accuracy, you know, and... um, I don't know that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there is that that sort of, like, still these weird ways where I find myself conflating the two or have a hard time accepting that that the one can be true, the higher one can be true, because I think we both value truth more so than this kind of scrupulous accuracy, because there are a lot of times where context matters, you know, and, and... where you could be more accurate, but that would actually be l- less true, truthful, because it might lead people to wrong understandings or wrong implications. So I, I petering out on that one. I don't <laughs> know where to go other than truth versus accuracy. Well, and I, I think that gets us. I mean, down to you know thinking about this whole topic in terms of the show is we look at a lot of films. Making films about historical events is a very 
well-worn and very popular subject matter. Mm. Um, and plays and, 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 yeah, and operas. Plays and, and operas and, and all these you know, various things. Um, paintings and that. And I think it, it behooves us to think about how we interact with artistic re- reproductions of historical events. Um, what are we looking for in, in that reproduction, um, which is going to then change how we evaluate them. And so, you know, being intentional and thoughtful about when we go to see a film like Zero Dark Thirty or Argo or any of those things, you know, that should be in our head. Like, okay, these are stories about real people. What does that mean? And whether you and I have any final answer to it, I think it's more important that we're asking the question. That's fair. I, I think that part of what I'm looking for is open-minded engagement. It seems to be people on all sides of an issue would be more or less in agreement that what they don't like or what is bad is what we call agenda-driven filmmaking, where I'm going to alter the accuracy of the film in order to make my own arguments about some larger topic Mm -hmm. more powerful. Um, But we live in such a politically divided and divisive age that anytime a work of art, and I'm thinking now specifically of Zero Dark Thirty, can even be construed as being interpreted as against whatever my political position is, then my assumption is not to give the artist the benefit of the doubt. It's that, oh, they're an agenda-driven filmmaker, and then I go over it with a fine-tooth comb looking for any possible inaccuracy that will confirm my evidence that, see, they're not playing Mm -hmm. fair, and they're, they're just altering the facts to choose them. And I, I just think that that way lies madness and you'll never then have an acceptable. That's, that's the political equivalent of the quant, quantitative film criticism that we decry in Christian circles that says it's morally good based on how many cubic centimeters of body parts that you can see and how many swear words uh, that there are. I would much rather get to the position where I have artists hopefully ever-expanding group of artists that I more or less trust or respect will do right by me Mm -hmm. and then submit myself to the film for two hours and learn more about that from examining the issues or ideas with someone who wants to examine them with me or wants me to examine them with them, then I will, by spending two and a half hours, for someone who, you know, has an agenda, is very close-minded, and might be more scrupulously accurate as a tactical means of trying to say that I have to agree with him or her. Well, this has been a different kind of... Thin Place podcast. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to us experiment. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment. 
You can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. And you can also follow Ken on Twitter, at Ken Moorfield, or at his blog, the number one, morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!